welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the fields of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Interim Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. Um, joining us today to talk about the Inclusive Excellence Program here at UMass are Dr. Elizabeth Connor, Inclusive Excellence Program Director and Associate Dean for Undergraduate Education and Development, Dr. Gabriella Weaver, Special Assistant to the Provost for Educational Initiatives and Professor of Chemistry, and Dr. Je Jessica Rochelo, lecturer in biology and leader of the faculty team for CFAGES Cure. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to learn more about the Inclusive Excellence Program and the work that you are doing to improve the student experience at UMass. Okay, so let's get started. Um, to start off, can each of you give us a brief introduction of yourselves, your role within the university, and how you became involved with the Inclusive Excellence Program? And according to my screen, can we start with Jess, please? Sure. Uh, I'm Jess Rochelow. I'm a lecturer in biology. And I came to UMass just last year, specifically for this program. Uh, I saw the position advertised and I saw that they were implementing CFAGES. And I had been teaching introductory biology labs for 10 years and had revised the intro lab program where I previously was. And I was really interested in providing students with an opportunity where they had a research-like experience. So I was super excited at the idea of implementing the CFAGES program for a much larger population uh, in this intro lab course at UMass. Thank you. And before we go to our, our next um, attendee, I want to make a correction. Dr. Gabriella Weaver is, your title is actually Chancellor Fellow and Professor of Chemistry. So I apologize for that. It recently changed, so I just wanted to make sure it was it was correct. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, and if you can, please share with us. I came to UMass in 2014 uh, to work um, as uh, the director of the Center for Teaching and Faculty Development at that time. And prior to that, I was at Purdue University for 13 years. And while I was there, I initiated um, a course-based undergraduate research program that was funded by the NSF. Um, it was one of the first in the nation. And though it started in chemistry, it, it quickly grew to other disciplines and to a large number of institutions. So our program started out as a collaborative of 14 institutions. Nine were universities and um, five were two-year colleges or community colleges and we it grew very quickly and in the years that followed uh, the National Science Foundation um, funded a few more of those across the country to do course-based undergraduate research of various types. While I was at Purdue I also um, started working more broadly in institutional transformation for STEM education in particular um, and one of the driving forces for me was 
uh, increasing access um, and success, student success in the STEM disciplines. And when I came to UMass and met the wonderful people here with terrific ideas and an environment that really was um, open to trying new approaches for supporting our students and really eager to, um, you know, go in new directions. Um, you know, by the time when I came, the, the, um, oh, what is it called? The science, the science building, uh, in, integrative learning. Integrative center? science building. Integrated yeah. Science Building, ISB, or Integrated um, Learning Center. In the Integrated Learning Center, thank you. Oh, that's gonna take a whole lot of editing right there. But at the time I came to uh, Purdue, or sorry, at the time I came to UMass, the Integrated Learning Center was just getting off the ground and it was a really direct example of the kinds of new directions that UMass wanted to go. So um, under Elizabeth's leadership and a lot of collaboration with great folks, we uh, ended up getting this funding from HHMI to do the course-based undergraduate research experiences with a focus on uh, inclusiveness, access, and student success. Thank you. And Elizabeth, please, if you could also share. Yes, thank you. So I have been at UMass for several decades. I'm a biologist, specifically a neurobiologist and a member of the biology department like Jess. And um, opportunities early in my career were available to become more and more involved in programming, often by the Howard Hughes Na uh, Medical Institute and the National Science Foundation, to engage students in authentic research opportunities. And also, sort of in, paired with that, I've been committed and worked for a long time with really talented people on active learning and making the whole curriculum and course experience vibrant and engaging to students. And this goes back to a time where the traditional lecture was the mode of operation, right? Students hardly ask questions. So at the time, it was fairly revolutionary and really, really exciting. So over the course of years, I've just been really privileged to be part of those movements and um, the talent that engaged here at UMass. I agree with Gabriella. The Center for Teaching and Learning invested in 10 biologists as Lilly Teaching Fellows, creating such a nucleus of, of teaching excellence and investment. So I then had the opportunity to lead the Department of Biology and um, and nested in there was also, we had a Howard Hughes grant in 2006, which was all about having these very high-end authentic research courses for undergraduates beginning in the first year and then continuing. But they weren't called cures at that time, that, but they were like the, the seed that, of the germination of the idea and got people to thinking about it. And they weren't totally authentic research, but the students developed skills and we saw how valuable they were. Then I took this position 
um, a few, uh, two years ago, three years ago almost, and had this opportunity with Gabriella and Jennifer Normanley of the Biochemistry and Molecular Biology Department to put together this new Inclusive Excellence proposal. And it, I have to say, Gabriella, it was months and months long. There was a pre-proposal, so we went through and worked and worked on it. And um, in my job now, I think it's really benefited the program because as associate dean in the College of Natural Science for undergraduate education, it gives me a lot of touches with faculty and departments and advisors to really help integrate all of our efforts in action because there's so much overlapping in purpose between my job, the commitment of Tricia Serio to inclusion and teaching excellence that I think we've, um, there's been synergy as a result. Thank you for that. So we'll jump back in. This question is for um, anyone can jump in and of course, feel free to add on as you all see as you please. But can you tell me a little bit about the Inclusive Excellence Program and the benefits of participating for our UMass community? So you want me to tackle that first? Please, yeah. In here? Okay, so um, so there's really two main thrusts of this program. And can I give a tiny bit of background? Because Absolutely. The whole gist of the program was about inclusion, increasing the capacity for inclusion. And there was very clear data available on the UMass websites that showed that our time to graduation, retention in STEM disciplines, retention in the major, um, and the graduation rates for underserved populations, we were falling short. And we really focus now on the life science courses because they have a very cohesive curriculum, especially in the first, the first life science majors. They have a cohesive curriculum in the first two years, a lot of similarities in interweaving of the courses they took. So it popped out pretty easily that we were falling short in those metrics. And then um, we asked why. And the premise was a lot of scientific research and, and education, and Gabriella was invaluable in providing this background, has shown you know, that making a connection in the first year is really important for retention of all students at the university. And secondly, we posited that having participation in research, that's a place where you make strong connections with lab groups, with the principal investigator, and also it lights the fire for a scientist, right? That's what keeps you in the major. So we dug a little deeper and looked at, okay, so maybe our underserved populations, which we um, described as underrepresented minorities, students who are first generation, and students who maybe come from economically less stable families and backgrounds, high schools, that kind of thing. We said, are they getting the research opportunities of their majority peers? you know, the, the non-URMs, non-economically privileged, non-first-gen, um, non and we found out that right there, nested in that data set around research, it was very clear that that was a disparity in terms of access of our students. 
So based a lot on Gabriella's research, we then said, okay, how can we identify why these students aren't participating and how can we try to come up with a hypothesis to fix it? And in doing that, we, um, we have two main thrusts to our proposal. One was we identified that there are some hidden curriculum that curricula that prevent our students from engaging in research because you've got to know how to network or have a summer that you don't have to earn money so you can take an internship or some research position. And, um, and so we developed a curriculum around these course-based undergraduate research opportunities and experiences or core cure, sorry, where the experience is embedded in the curriculum. It's not an add-on or in addition to. And then the larger and more daunting challenge was, how do we change the hearts and minds of the faculty, staff, graduate students, everybody who touches the experience of an undergraduate to make sure that every student is viewed as someone who can be a potential scientist and a potential successful scientist. So those are my too many words um, encapsulates what how I view the program. No, that's perfect, actually. Thank you. Yes, please. One tiny thing um, to add to Elizabeth's really, really complete description, um, and she covered a lot of the important points here. We planned on starting with the life sciences for the reasons that Elizabeth pointed out. Um, but all along the plan has been and continues to be that the life sciences portion of this will lay a foundation for how to do it in the other disciplines. So given that the life sciences has this coherent curriculum and uh, really a nice setup with respect to the courses where we can do the implementation and roll it out. But once we've done that and developed the framework for how to implement it, our plan really is to support other disciplines across the sciences and even engineering um, and, and beyond potentially so that this can be not limited to just the, the life sciences, but really be potentially campus wide. And I think that's that's a fantastic plan. And um, you know, I we can come back to this later because I don't want to derail our our plan of questions and where we want to end. But I am really interested in what you all think it takes to engage other parts of campus, right? Like, what will it take for us to be able to um, you know share this information, share this knowledge, and then develop a similar programs, understanding that they're not going to be exactly the same, but similar programs with similar goals um, and other you know parts of campus other departments other schools and colleges um, and if you have thoughts on that you know now i think you know we have a moment please do share sure um is it okay if i if i take that um oh, of course yeah um uh, so during um the 2019-2020 academic year um at least the parts of it that were normal i <laughs> I had the, the great fortune and, um, what is the word I'm thinking of? Um, I was a, an ACE fellow, the American Council on Education, and that is a fellowship that allows you to 
take a year away from your home campus and learn um, about leadership at a different institution. But one of the important pieces of that program is that upon returning, the ACE fellow is going to be implementing a project at their home campus. And this is a project that the fellows uh, discuss with their nominating um, administrator at their home campus before they even go. So uh, along with the chancellor, I discussed uh, a variety of possibilities. And one of the ones that we both found interesting is the idea of exploring how to do cures in the um, humanities disciplines. So this year, um, though the plans are now different because the semester is taking place in a different mode than when we initially planned this. But this year I have started working with history and with uh, women, gender and sexuality studies to think about how to engage their students in a version of cures that really um, it is not limited to what we assume cures are in the in the science disciplines. <clears throat> and what that really means is looking at what knowledge is thought of at, in those disciplines. How do you how do experts think of knowledge? How do experts think about knowledge development and the use of knowledge in those disciplines? And how do experts think about um, reasoning in those disciplines. So it goes really at, to the core of what is this discipline about? How do people think within this discipline? And then how do we take those ideas and weave them into the ways that we teach? So that connects to faculty development, weave them into the ways that we teach so that students early on are engaged in those modes of learning and modes of thinking and modes of doing. So the skill development really is about the how you think in that discipline. Uh, so what it takes is trying to understand the discipline at a really deep level, which is why this project is so interesting to me because I'm going to be learning about a couple of disciplines that I have only a, currently a very superficial understanding of. Um, and it also takes willingness and interest on the part of the administration and the, the campus leaders uh, in those two departments. The um, department heads that I have been speaking with are very interested. And of course, Chancellor uh, Subhaswamy is very supportive as well. So I think that those are two important um, elements of being able to do this uh, beyond where we're starting in the life sciences. That's perfect. Thank you. I think that's going to be really helpful to people that are listening to this. And I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, selfishly in Eisenberg. Um, we've tried in the past to incorporate students, but we, there is no systematic approach. There is nothing institutionalized to how we can better incorporate students into these research projects. Um, and to your points earlier, I think all of you touched on this. Anecdotally, I can speak to experiences that I've had with students from underrepresented groups, first generation students, including them in some of my research projects and seeing how they light up, right? I mean, they're struggling, you pull them in, they do any bit of research and it, immediately it feels like they develop an attachment not only to you as the researcher and the faculty member, but also to the program and to getting through whatever they're struggling with because they found something exciting that they can have ownership over. So I think this is fantastic. You have you have just identified a couple of the key uh, 
tenets of the, the theories that um, are behind the whole CURE movement, that students are able to develop ownership of their ideas, that they're able to develop skills in learning, and that they're able to develop um, the, the confidence that they're able to do this work. And from that grows a sense of identity and mm. uh, feeling like they belong to the discipline as, as part of the discipline. Yeah, that's, that's amazing to me. Again, someone who thinks a lot about developing sense of belonging and how that ties into inclusion. This is, this is really powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. So my next question, the Inclusive Excellence Program has a focus on increasing equity in STEM, and particularly in the life science major. What are the barriers that have traditionally prevented STEM fields from being equitable, and what are you doing as part of this project to dismantle um, some of those barriers? I could speak to that. <clears throat> um, I mean, I think that both Elizabeth and Gabrielle have alluded to this, but um, one of the big barriers has been the curriculum and this long time focus on, especially in lab sciences, um, covering the topics, you know, making sure that students have particular lab skills, but historically these have been really far removed from how they're practiced in a scientific research project. Um, and, and I think transforming our lab education programs takes imagination, it takes time, it takes funding, it takes personnel. So all of, you know, reimagining the curriculum and then implementing that new curriculum um, has, has been a barrier, I think, and it's currently gaining more traction. I think if you, as you've heard um, Gabrielle and Elizabeth discuss, um, but this, this transition to focusing on exploring ideas and participating in science and embracing uncertainty uh, has, has not been present historically in our lab courses. So that's, um, that's the advantage of implementing this, but it's also the barrier uh, that's currently there. Thank you. Um, you said something that I, I, like, it sort of stuck with me, the curriculum being a barrier and me thinking about how incredibly highly identified, um, but also protective faculty are of their courses, right? Um, of their courses, of their curriculum. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way it should be done. Everyone else is doing it this way. Um, how have you all dealt with that? If you have, how have you dealt with that um, resistance, right? And it's, 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 I think it's very sincere resistance because people, their livelihoods, their identities are embedded in the curriculum and the courses they teach and the way that they've taught them. But to your points that you've made so far, we have to interrogate that in order to get to a place where we're willing to do these things that you all have shown are very impactful for our students. So can you share any experiences that you've had with, um, or maybe you know, faculty are more, more open to this than I'm, I'm thinking? Neff, the question you're asking is, um, it's, the, it's the tip of the iceberg with respect to institutional transformation because um, especially in the sciences, the long tradition of doing science, if you think back to um, you know, the, the earliest um, sort of written documents we have of scientists doing science on purpose, right? Other than things that were discovered um, in, in other ways. But 
the the people who had the ability to explore and do science and not have to go out and make an income were people who had um, social privilege. And generally those people were um, male and well-off. Um, and in um, certainly in the Western world, generally those people were also white. So the sciences really has um, evolved from um, a field where there was, you had to have privilege to even have the ability to sit down and do some of these things. And then that naturally evolved into those who were the leaders in the field and created the curricula and created the sense of what needed to be learned um, were people that were like them and that you know viewed the world the way that they did. So it, culturally, it's very embedded that information gets transmitted a certain way and certain types of information gets transmitted. And then you get to um, how even higher education itself as a sector in our societies uh, came to be. And even there you see issues of privilege. Who, who is it that works at institutions of higher education and who is it that teaches and who is it that even gets to attend? And so that all comes you know, down to us through this long history that carries this baggage that, you know, scientific theories and, and scientific experimentation is built on what has happened before and it continues to build. And that is one of the great strengths of science. But it also means that we bring in all of the cultural aspects that has that have come with that, you know, whether we realize it or not. And so that is part of why the question that you're asking really is getting at cultural change of thinking about the ownership of science, the doing of science, what it means to think about science and scientific knowledge. When we deal with faculty who are um, interested in change, um, we really try to focus on the evidence that now exists about how human beings learn. And we talk about, um, you know, we get to the core of the idea that we would like students to succeed, that we want to create a, a scientific workforce, um, a, an, an educated citizenry, and that to do that, we need to pay attention to the data about how people learn. Um, most scientists use data in their work and they are used to basing their decisions about their science on evidence. Um, interestingly, it's a new phenomenon for them to also think about their teaching that way. And so when we are working with faculty, we, we try to get them to think about their teaching in a scientific way. In fact, there's a, there's a book called Scientific Teaching which gets at this very idea. Um, and so it, it's partly it's dismantling the way people um, instinctively react to uh, how they teach. Partly it's dismantling centuries of culture around what science is and who does science. 
Thank you. I, I feel like I could speak to each of you in your own podcast, so I'm going to have to really contain myself from all the follow-up questions and, and comments that I have. Um, thank you for that. Um, Jess, could you talk a little bit about this lab and the students that are going through the program and this particular cohort that Elizabeth mentioned? Can you share a little bit more on that for us? Yeah, so um, we, we've offered this kind of first course, the, there's a, two semesters to this program. So we've offered the first portion of it twice now, both in the fall of 2019 and then the spring of 2020. Uh, and there were, let me think, in our, in our pilot, we had um, 20 students who were second year students. And then in the spring, we offered this to um, 40 more first year students who are part of the Bio Pioneers cohort. And, uh, and now we're continuing to grow our numbers depending on what happens uh, with COVID and who gets to be on campus and, and whether we can offer this in person. Um, so these students have dug in the soil around UMass campus and discovered new viruses. So the whole crux of this program is finding brand new viruses that infect bacteria. And, um, and, and you know, so this program happens all over the country. And uh, it's, it's really, I think, a, it's a very smart program because the diversity and just the sheer numbers of these viruses is massive. So the chances of any one student finding a brand new one is really high. So that ownership is right there. The students get to name their virus. So these are called bacteriophages. That's where the phage part of the C phage comes from. So these are phages, viruses that infect bacteria. And they're finding brand new ones that have never been discovered before. The students are naming them. They're purifying them from a larger sample, making a whole bunch of them. And then we're uh, partnering with the electron microscopy facility and the students get to see. So these viruses are so tiny, you can't use a traditional light microscope, but we walk over to the Silvio Conti um, Polymer Science Center and, and they you know, get their samples up on the electron microscope and the students can see exactly what this phage that they discovered looks like, uh, which is such a wow moment for, you know, for everybody. Um, and they, you know, they have to struggle through this. So some students luck out and they find a phage in their very first soil sample that they bring in on the first day. And some of them have to go through 20 iterations of that. And so they get this through doing, they get this understanding that, oh, you know, science does take some luck. It also takes some skill. <clears throat> My skill will develop as I practice these techniques over and over again. You know, they can look at their plates from the first day and see that it's all contaminated and nothing grew and wow, is this hard? And then they see in week three or four, look at my plates, they look amazing and I can do this. Uh, so that confidence building is really built into the curriculum. And, uh, and by the end they can say, I discovered a brand new phage, I can see what it looks like, I extracted DNA, I put all this information into a database. Um, there's a whole database of phages that are being collected from across the country and across the world. So there's this important contribution these students are making to the scientific community. Um, and this is, 
I think for UMass to become engaged in this program, it's an exciting time um, because we have this, this new story that came out a couple last year uh, about a phage therapy case where there was a young girl who was um, infected with an antibiotic resistant bacteria and this group at the University of Pittsburgh, Graham Hatville's group who started this whole project and who archives all of these phages. So we're sending our phages to Pittsburgh. Everybody's phage goes to the freezer in Pittsburgh. They mined this whole collection and found three phages that worked on this young girl's infection. And one of them came from a student at Providence College. So, you know, to see that, like, okay, there's an environmental perspective. We're finding these, these phages that infect soil bacteria, but also there's a potential clinical application. And, and this idea that, um, basic science, right? You never know what, what, what you're going to find from these basic scientific discoveries. And it may feel like a drop in the bucket. And it did to this Providence College student probably, like what's anybody ever gonna do with my phage? And then it, it ends up being used to save the life of a young girl. So um, that is such an exciting moment to have in this program and in this project. And uh, really pulls our students in and gets them, you know, they're additionally excited about what they're doing. That is amazing. Um, I am getting excited and I want my own phage as, as someone that's over in Eisenberg, um, not, you know, being very ignorant to these basic concepts of, of science of, and biology. I want my own phage. Like, how do we get faculty over digging in the dirt too? Yeah, totally. Yeah, we, that's... We've, we've talked about how exciting that would be to get, get contributions. Yeah. And then if I just might add, you know, now being in the middle of this pandemic that's caused by a virus to show students that, hey, this, this information that we're finding out about viruses, about how viruses work, about their genomes, about the proteins that they encode, you know, this, these have real applications and are important to understand. And, and they have an appreciation for the process of science that goes into understanding whatever virus or whatever infection or whatever it is that, um, you know, that scientists are looking at. Absolutely. That's amazing. And, and to the, you know, sort of the thesis of this conversation, the fact that we're able to, through this program, pull in students from underrepresented groups and that, um, you know, our first generation students that may not have a deeper understanding of this connection to science in the real world and so solving these problems. I think this is like an awesome experience for students. Um, so thank you for that. The, so the broader curriculum and how that ties into sort of the life science track. Could you tell me a little bit about like the other courses that students would take, how this fits into the curriculum? Yeah. So we, um, the, the grant, the program, the Inclusive Excellence Program actually proposes that once students go through C-phages, and we should say that the plan, uh, we're counting on just to be a miracle worker here, there is nowhere in the world where they have ramped up the CFH program to more the stu student numbers that we aspire to. So we put, just puts 1,200 life science students through the intro bio lab a year. And that is the goal. Right That's now, amazing. It is. Well, <laughs> fingers <laughs> crossed. Um, you know, she's successfully done 48. COVID is certainly 
taken us back as to what we how our speed of implementation but we're going ahead and should this work it will be groundbreaking for the whole CFAGE program so um She's going to put UMass on the map along with her team. And we should mention the team. We should mention Peter Chen in biochemistry and molecular biology, Sloan Segrist in microbiology, Randy Phyllis in uh, biology. And um, Jess, you've got to help me. I'm forgetting your... So this amazing team of lab staff who are making the plates and you know getting all of these supplies into yeah. the lab room and... and going with my whims on, you know, I think we need this much today because this is, you know, we never know what we need because we never know what, what really what the results are going to be from our students. So it's this guessing game every time. But Beth Punska and RJ Paz and Judy Zhang uh, are, are an amazing lab prep staff team who are um, helping us pull this off for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for mentioning them. So what does sustainability look like for this program? Um, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now. Um, one, I think, what do you need institutionally to ensure that this program is sustainable? And then I also think, you know, five, 10 years from now, what does success look like for you? What will that feel like for this program and feel like for you all for this to have been a success? I think we need to have this work and have data that is persuasive so that the departments who are participating cannot ever imagine being without these experiences, that they become so much a part of the culture and success of their students. And not only do the students succeed, but the faculty succeed because these students will be in their research labs and they're going to come in well prepared as scientists to pick up a new problem and participate. So I, it's a big problem. We need investment at the curriculum level by departments because it isn't cheap. Science does take money to do it in an authentic way. You know, if we think about the cost of a pencil and paper or an eyedropper compared to um, the sequencing, the, the electron microscopy. So to have the university partner with us, the IELTS community to contribute the electron microscopy is huge for this particular cure. The other cures that we're going to be developing and that already exist already, you know, take resources. And so we'll have to have that commitment. We now have lab fees that certainly help offset some of the, the need um, for expense. But I was just gonna mention, you know, we need deep benches so that departments have more than one faculty member who will do this. And I think if you look at the, the CURE community and the CFAGE in particular, if it's been one faculty member who did it at a campus, it was totally reliant on them. So we need to have this culture of CURES um, to be involve a lot of people. Oh, the other thing that has become aware, in our initial application, we saw that research intensive courses that required applications to, to take that course, where you just couldn't sign up on Spire, but you had to fill out an application, we saw that that was a barrier. And it turns out that you can sort of say, okay, we're getting away with them, but 
they can creep back. So we need such leadership in that institutional change right at the individual level, because you mentioned about faculty and independence and their, um, their investment in their own course into how they do it. So this is what I see as one of the biggest struggles to have an appreciation and a willingness at the, at the level of the faculty and as a faculty community to question one another, to make sure and be willing to look at data that can be unsettling and depressing and to be willing then to act on it and not um, brush it under the rug. It's a, it's a big job. Thank you for that. I, I absolutely agree with the idea of facing the truths that the data is telling us and the stories that the data is telling us and then doing something about it. Thank you. I'd like to add a couple of Please. points to what Jess and Elizabeth have, have shared. The, the CURE community that Elizabeth mentioned um, is, is, has been around for a couple of decades now nationwide. Um, although CFAGES hasn't been um, scaled up to the numbers that we're talking about at UMass at any single institution, um, it as a program is, is quite large in that it, it involves many institutions. And there are other CURE programs that have been scaled um, to the kinds of numbers that we're talking about, not CFAGES specifically. So we know what we're doing at UMass is, is based on successful models. So we have looked at the frameworks and the models um, in putting the UMass idea together. So I, I don't think we're just taking a shot in the dark here. We, you know, we've planned this carefully. And the uh, aspects of um, faculty involvement that Elizabeth was mentioning, we've also tried to build that in in a very practical way into the proposal because there is an arm of, of our work that is faculty development, which is to engage faculty in understanding the basic ideas of cures, in understanding why it's needed and what the benefits are to students and how to go from teaching a, in a traditional mode to teaching in a cure-based way. So we have to do both the building of the desire, you know, that, that changing of the culture that, how could we possibly teach a student science without having them go through a cure? Are you kidding me? You know, that, that has to be part of what every faculty member thinks. But we also need to give them the skills as faculty members to be able to do that because that's not something that they've ever done. Um, at the risk of, of seeming like I am um, self-aggrandizing. I just want to point to this book that's going to come out soon. Um, I'm, I'm showing the cover here and it's going to be uh, published in January. The co-authors um, are Aaron Dolan from the University of Georgia and Gabriella Weaver from UMass, so myself. The reason I'm showing you that book is that it is the first book about cures that is intended to help faculty actually know what they are and develop their own. So it's really intended as a guidebook for faculty and institutions. It has a whole chapter on scaling up 
it has another whole chapter on the scholarship of cures for people who want to then contribute to that scholarly basis. Um, so that, you know, people can actually do this wherever they are and in whatever discipline that they're working in. Aaron Dolan is in biology and I come from a, a physical science and chemistry background. So we try to bring in a variety of disciplinary examples in that book. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and we will absolutely ensure that when we post this, we'll, we'll have that, the book, the title, um, co-authors, everything along with this podcast. So thank you. So now, may I also add yeah. that Erin Dolan is coming in December to, to run some workshops for our faculty and, and graduate students on, on developing and running cures. So given, you know, we're really fortunate to have that on our radar and coming up in December after classes have officially end, ended. Coming. <laughs> yeah, virtually. <laughs> coming attractions, yeah. Yes, as, as much as you can go anywhere in the middle of a pandemic, right? Um, thank you for that. So we're nearing the end. Sorry, Jess, did you have something? I don't want to. I did just want to add. Yeah, one please, thing. please do. In terms of the the long term, um, one inspiring idea that I really love is, um, you know, a vision that I have for the cures in biology and especially in the intro biology is that the research faculty in biology and microbiology and biochemistry. My hope is that they get so excited about what we're what we're doing. Uh, that they see all these undergraduate students generating all this data and that we can form partnerships between the intro course and our undergraduate students and the research programs on our campus uh, so that we can you know, modify the cure, maybe not depend solely on the CFH's cure for the long term, but really start to form these partnerships between research faculty and teaching faculty and our teaching labs so that our students are contributing to the research projects on our campus. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, your wisdom, your experiences with Cures, your experiences with CFAGES. Um, I got excited, so I would imagine that students and faculty alike will, will get really excited about the ideas that you shared here. Um, so thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.